Our gospel reading this morning introduced us to a consistent and central theme of the Christian life, and that is obedience. We saw in the passage that when it got right down to it, to Jesus' most heartfelt struggles, he gave us the, the words that sit for all time as what it means to obey when he said, not as I will, but as you will. In the same passage, we saw also though the struggles of Jesus' followers to obey, they who were struggling to watch and wait for him, even as he said for one hour. Well, we've been studying the book of Acts, and as we've gone through chapter by chapter, we've been asking ourselves this question, how is it that the Holy Spirit who created the Jesus life in the first church may want to create the Jesus life in us through these passages. And in our passage in Acts this morning, we see that one way the Holy Spirit creates Jesus life in us is by giving us the desire, the intention, and the capacity to obey Jesus. That's to say that one great sign of the Spirit is the freedom and the capacity to make choices against what the world wants to make choices against what our physical body cries out for, and for that at which the proud and arrogant human spirit grasps. Well, one way to get into the topic of obedience this morning is to ask ourselves this rhetorical question. I say rhetorical because it's a bit of a, actually of a false dualism, but it'll help us, I think, get to what we need to get at. So if you ask yourself, just what's your kind of knee-jerk or gut reaction? What's the most fundamental aspect the most basic commitment of Christianity? Is it belief or obedience? Well, belief has a lot to commend itself. Jesus, when he announced the gospel, said in Mark 1 that what he was looking for was repentance and belief. Paul, in his famous passage in Romans 10, asked for belief, that we would confess with our mouth that which we actually believe in our hearts and that as we did so, we would be saved. Well, obedience, though, also has a lot to commend itself. Adam and Eve are invited into an obedient relationship as the partners of God. Abraham, in the covenant, is given responsibilities that he and Israel are to obey. Moses, of course, gives uh, Israel the Torah, uh, the law, the guidance, the teaching, the instruction, that they were to obey. John the Baptist uh, commands the Jews of his day to obey. And Jesus himself, of course, said, if you love me, you will keep my command. And then we have also the writings of Paul, who in Philippians 2 said, God is working in you to make you willing and able to obey him. In Colossians 1, Paul said of himself, it's the gospel that makes me work so hard to obey my God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I've worked harder than everybody around me. That is to say, working hard to obey God, but not I, he said, but the grace of God within me. And at least eight other times in Paul's letters, he refers to pleasing the Lord. He says things like, find out what pleases the Lord and do it. And here we see in this passage in Acts this morning that Paul says that his obedient heart is so large that he's willing to even be bound and die in Jerusalem if necessary. Well, I think one way to get us alert to this topic of obedience this morning 
is to ask yourself this question. Do you intend to fully obey Jesus? Do you intend to do that? Maybe another way to think about this is should obedience even be expected of Christians? And maybe most poignantly of all, can obedience be enjoyed by us? Well, maybe you would say, no, you know, I actually don't intend to fully obey Jesus. And you might honestly think, it's just too hard. It's impossible. Why try? I'll just end up in works and in frustrating religion. And certainly all of us in this room could understand somebody having that point of view. It's just this. If you, if I, if we do not have such an intention, then in what way is Jesus Lord of our lives? Well, our story in Acts this morning shows us how Paul's obedience comes about when a prophet by the name of Agabus gives Paul this symbolic prophecy, taking his belt, uh, the prophet ties his hands and feet and says to Paul, this is what will happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. But Paul, the text says, wouldn't budge. He said in response to this, why all the hysteria? Why do you insist on making a scene? You're looking at this backwards. The issue is not what they do to me, whether arrest or murder, but what the master Jesus will do through my obedience. Can't you see that, Paul asks. Well, let's see how we could see that. How does one get a heart like that for that level of obedience? And this morning I have a partial proposal, and that is liturgical worship. Here's the way the logic works for me. If obedience is basic, core, and fundamental to Christianity, and I think it is, then liturgy is a basic practice for becoming the kind of person who would and could obey. Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, has written, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not commit to the kind of life that will produce the actions and priorities that we desire. And so this morning, in the heart of this message, I want to work on your imagination about this notion of obedience and how liturgy and sacrament could inspire and enable such a life of obedience. But I also want to put a stake in the ground here this morning for our future. I want to say clearly who HTC is for. And I want to get at that uh, first in, in the negative, so to speak, by saying this, that liturgy is not the deluxe or heavy-duty version of Christian worship. It's not for deep Christians or the especially intelligent, or for those who happen to be oriented to literature, or to those who love church history, or who are drawn to high forms of church. Actually, liturgy and the prayer book are precisely the opposite. They're for beginners, for the barely or culturally churched, for the spiritual hungry, for those who are seeking training and obedience. They're for those who have decided to and intend to follow Jesus. The kind of a brief, really brief history of the prayer book is this, that Thomas Cramner, the English reformer, looked around at the English countryside and knew that all over were little villages and small cities of people who often or even usually did not have any kind of Christian leadership, 
they had kind of a, a Christian conscience and uh, uh, maybe a bent uh, towards God, but had no way of kind of practically speaking, coming to really decisive faith and then growing in that faith. And so when Cramner creates the prayer book, he's giving something for basic Christianity for beginners. It's fascinating to me that in our culture, this has become thought of as something that is for sort of deep or really experienced Christians. It's just not true. The prayer book actually works something like this. Maybe you've seen little four or five-year-old, six-year-old boys and girls um, playing t-ball, you know, where they, they'll hit a baseball or a softball off a tee. And, you know, this is, we would all know, you know, this is obviously for beginners. But you may not know that sometimes even Major League Baseball players, guys being paid 10, 12, 15 million dollars a year, you will sometimes find them hitting balls off tees. Why? Because they're going back to the basics, probably working on something little like what their hands are doing through the hitting area or exactly where their weight is, you know, forward or back or on the balls of their feet or whatever. And so they go back to the very basics. Well, of course, musicians do the same thing, playing their scales and working on their fingering, using metronomes. Golfers, of course, do the same thing, working on basic things like grip and setup. And this is what the liturgy is. This is what the prayer book and the daily offices are. They are the little things we do that are presently under our control that help us become the kinds of people who, when on the spot and perhaps feel out of control, can obey and do the right thing. This is what the psalmist was getting at this morning when we read, Your statutes are wonderful, O God, therefore I obey them. Direct my footsteps according to your word that I might obey you. Well, if you'll get your bulletin in your hands now, I want to just walk you through these basic liturgical elements that we use as we worship week in and week out and show you how I think they can shape a life of obedience. Well, we begin week in and week out with prelude, with silence, with meditation. And these things make us alert to what God might be saying that we may need to obey. Next, we have the opening acclamation. And this acclamation, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever, this grounds us in that which is most fundamental. Week in and week out, we ground ourselves in that which is most basic to the cosmos, and that is God and his kingdom rule and reign. And then we have what we call an invocation, where we ask the Holy Spirit to be especially and manifestly present in us, that he would indeed, as he did with the first church in the book of Acts, that he would create the Jesus life in us and produce in us a Jesus kind of obedience. And then what we have, we have what we call the prayer of preparation, otherwise known as the collect for purity. And it contains this lovely language that I love saying week in and week out. And that is we ask that in our worship, we might learn to perfectly love God. That is to say, be his cooperative, obedient sons and daughters. And then we turned we turn to worship in song. Well, why do we do this? We sing as a part of our worship because worship, unlike any other kind of the use of words, whether poetry or prose or any kind of spoken word, those things are all great. But song has this unique way of inclining us and our hearts towards the God whom we obey. 
It's as if song has the capacity to reach into our deepest inner persons and take all those various things that rumble around inside of us and pull them all together the way a zipper does the teeth on a zipper. It just kind of pulls everything together and inclines us towards the God who we want to obey. And then we read scripture aloud together. And we do this because scripture tells us the story in which we are to become obedient actors. And then we say the creed. This is our opportunity to say, yes, I will obey this story. I will find the meaning for my life from this story, and I will obey its plot lines. And then we have what we call the prayers of the people. And the prayers of the people are important for producing obedience in them, in us, because they teach us to intercede for the major elements of our lives where obedience may be called for, for things like loving neighbor, for things like loving and praying for politicians of the party that we normally can't stand. I mean, all of us are either Republicans or Democrats or Independents or Libertarians or something. And that means that there's somebody always in office, local, state, or federal, that we don't typically like or, you know, don't, wouldn't have sort of an inclination towards. And the prayers, just as an example, teach us to be obedient children, praying for those people who we might otherwise even hate. And well, then we confess our sins. And in confession, we remind ourselves that like the disciples in our gospel reading this morning, we're like them as they were in the garden, that sometimes we also can't wait and watch with Jesus. And in confession, we say to God, to ourselves, and to everyone around us, that this is true about us as well. And then we have absolution. And in absolution, you know, the priest, not speaking his own words and not speaking from his own authority, but speaking the words of God and from the authority of the death of Christ on the cross, tells us that God has forgiven us and that he's freed us in this Christ. And that this freedom is not to be used on ourselves selfishly, but this freedom is to become free to be the obedient friends of Jesus for the sake of others. And having received the peace of God, we then extend it to one another by saying, the peace of the Lord be always with you and also with you. And in this, we extend grace and forgiveness to others, um, freeing ourselves again to be obedient followers. And then we share in Eucharist together, or Holy Communion. And this is core to obedience in this sense. That in Eucharist, we are participating by faith in the ongoing life of Jesus. Jesus is alive, and he is, as an alive person, precisely able to disciple us into obedience. And one of the things that he asked us to do is to share together with him in this meal, week in and week out, and that somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, through this meal, that we would participate in his ongoing life, creating in us, nurturing in us, the capacity to be his cooperative, obedient friends. And then at the end of Eucharist, we have this prayer and thanksgiving that I so love that says, grant us strength and courage to love and serve you. Do you hear the obedience there? To love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. And then, of course, we close our time together every week with what is known as a benediction, or that is something like saying good words over the congregation or words of goodness. 
the benediction just alerts us that we leave church to re-enter the world, not in fear or shame or anxious feelings of not measuring up. Rather, we leave church, we re-enter the world, blessed with the goodness of God. Well, let me summarize by saying this. The notion of obedience arises from this one fundamental fact, that God made us for a purpose. And this is seen from creation to Abraham, to Moses, to the monarchy, to the prophets, to John the Baptist, to Jesus and the apostles. And the story they tell us is that we are saved not merely from the world, but we're saved for it. That salvation is both to and through us. But there's something that sits in the back of most of our minds that inadvertently sets obedience aside. And this is what I think it is. That sometimes we think forgiveness is the whole deal. I read a story in a book that I can't think of the author's name right now, who was trying to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make here. And he told the story, this is kind of in picture Western, you know, horse and buggy America, where people would get dressed, you know, properly to go into town. And so this man was to take his four-year-old son, or a two-year-old, I can't remember, into town. So he got him all cleaned up and put him in his town clothes, and then had to go back in the house to do something, you know, like go get his keys or cell phone or something, or the buggy whip. And so he, he goes in, he finds what he's looking for, he comes out, and his boy is sitting playing in a mud bath. So he takes the boy in the house, he cleans him up, changes his clothes. In that sense, he forgives him, he washes him, he makes him clean. But that's not the whole deal. He was still going into town with dad. Going into town was still going to happen. As, for, as important as forgiveness is, as important as it is that our sins be washed white as snow, that is not the end of the story getting in the buggy, sitting with our Father in heaven, going into town, and participating in his life is what this is all about. So in conclusion, I want to tell you about a kind of a, it's, well, it's not a plaque, it's just a piece of paper that I've taped to the back of my office door, and I've, I've had it there for many years, and it, it forces me to just look at it day in and day out. And I don't remember where this comes from, but it's a paragraph that says this, Christ has many tasks for us. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are to our liking and coincide with our own inclinations and are in our immediate best interest. Some are just the opposite. In some we please Christ and please ourselves. In others, we cannot please Christ except for by denying ourselves. Yet the power to take on all of these is for sure given us in Jesus, for it is he who strengthens us and comes to help us when we are weak. And now, let us willingly fasten ourselves to the God of covenant. And we'll do so this morning by using this prayer that's sometimes known as the Methodist covenant prayer, sometimes known as the prayer of John Wesley. But it says this, I use it and I commend it to you. I am no longer my own, but yours. Use me as you choose. Rank me alongside whoever you choose. 
Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, raised up for you or brought down low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. With my whole heart, I freely choose to yield all things to your ordering and approval. And so now, God of glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am your own. Perhaps now as we pause to meditate on our readings this morning, you may just want to use this phrase. So now, God of glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am your own. Amen.